This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What you yeah. did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, I'd like to have a good evening. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to one field and we'll see them. What you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> it's the Irish Times Second Cabins Football Podcast. Oh, my David, Ken Erdy and Kieran Murphy all here. Hey, how are you? Not too bad. Now, I didn't get to watch enough live football this weekend. I want to lay that out there between one thing and another. I was neglectful of the live Premier League action, but that did mean I watched a lot of Match of the Day, both versions. Match of the Day classic and it's offbeat little brother it's the whimsical little bro yeah. match of the day too and then Noel Gallagher made a guest appearance last night on match of the day too oh yeah did, did. did you see it I did I did well these before you give your opinion I'll, I'll throw mine out there if that's alright these experiments are always fraught with danger Ken of two main types mm. one is that the celebrity fan ends up having no depth of knowledge just doesn't know anything about football I mean this can happen and that then begins to grate after a few minutes the second issue is they might know enough to get by but that knowledge is lost in a haze of nerves as they, uh, the, the artificial environment of the TV studio gets into their psyche. I think Noel Gallagher did all right on both counts. He wasn't pushed too hard for tactical analysis and he definitely wasn't going to be phased by having to talk about football on TV. Um, so, and, you know, not that he made too many salient points necessarily, but no. I thought he came across all right. I'm not entirely sure that Noel Gallagher is going to get, you know, he's, he's going to be cowed by the... The titan that is Mark Lawrenson sitting beside him. I, mean, I can't really see... No Mark Lawrenson, by the way, uh, st- tried really hard last night. You could tell he was way more... You know the way there's the usual Lauro sitting back, laissez-faire, that he's been doing for 30 years. He was on the edge of his seat. He was making all these energetic points. And, yeah. uh, maybe I remember one it. introduction he made, particularly when Noel Gallagher was talking about uh, David Silva. Oh, he's the man. He's a wizard. And uh, Lawrenson interjected with, he'd get in the team in any era, really, wouldn't he? <laughs> and uh, everyone agreed, yes, David Silva, in any era of football, would, would have, make uh, a team or the Man City would have, team. Would have gotten well, his favorite, Noel Gallagher's favorite player, Man City player of all time, David Silva. Yeah. Even more than uh, than any of the greats of the past. Georgie King Clase. 
uh, and those kind of guys. On Saturdays, uh, so overall, you thought decent, decent effort by Gallagher? No, um, I thought it was okay. I mean, I wasn't blown away. I mean, he did his main contribution was, of course, the um, nickname for Brendan Rogers, calling him the Broge. Yeah. No, I thought that was okay, but I thought he said it too many times. I mean, he said it, I think, four times. Say it twice. Once at the beginning, once at the end of the segment. Or say it 15 times, and then it will become funny again. It was close to that. It was close to becoming funny again because it, it, it was put to the other pundits that uh, Rogers was praising the system too much rather than praising Coutinho for scoring an amazing goal. Mm. And he said, ah, but that, that's the Broge putting the system in there. And that was uh, there was a considerable gap from his first reference to the Broge to that reference. So I kind of thought, yeah, that's all right, but maybe you're right. Maybe you needed a couple more to make it... Uh, a couple more, a couple less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but, um, yeah, look, I was a little bit surprised, actually, that, um, um, what's the name of the presenter again? Mark Chapman. Referred to Brendan Rogers as a David Brent-type character. I was a bit surprised, actually. I thought that was a little uh, little cutting for the sort of main national highlights uh, program. It's Match know? of the Day 2, Ken. You're allowed oh, to say those okay. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I quite like Mark Chapman. Is that on Saturday's Match of the Day, Ken? None of that. Yeah. None of that messing Who around. Who knows what those crazy bastards at Match of the Day 2 <laughs> are going to come up with next? Robbie Savage yeah. on Saturday night was sitting beside Alan Shearer, largely just repeating whatever point Shearer had made and trying to present it as an original thought. I don't get Robbie Savage as a pundit, okay? I'm going to say this. I don't know what he's there for because if we, if we still class him as a recently retired player, he should fall into... One of the categories, one of three categories, really. He could be one of the biggest names in the sport, the Thierry Henry, Paul Scholes type figure. No matter what they say, there's a certain cachet about them, at least in the in the first year or two after retirement. He's obviously not in that. There's another category of names not quite as big, but big enough they have a respect within the game. We'll have to work a lot harder, maybe bring some more technical analysis. Gary Neville is the leader in that bracket. Mm-hmm. Robbie Savage definitely isn't in there. And there's a lower level again, which could be the Robbie uh, Savage level. But to make a name as a pundit, these guys normally have to be insanely controversial and whip up regular media storms, which I don't think he, he really has done until Saturday night. What you're going to... Well, who, who else would be on that level, do you think? <sighs> I mean, you're talking about Stan Collymore, for instance? Stan Collymore, maybe, yeah. Collymore, though, I think is... Although he's a higher level player than Savage. Oh, much... I mean, an infinitely better player and also an infinitely better... Pundit, in my opinion, I mean, at least he he makes kind of some substantial points. Well, I mean, the, the, I've seen an article about uh, Robbie, written by Jonathan Lowe, I think, in the Daily Telegraph, where he tried to explain Robbie's the appeal of Robbie Savage, and the best that he could come up with was that he is the everyman. Yeah, I've heard that. I mean, well, I mean, what, is well, he the everyman? I don't know. Well, he's not. I don't think he's like Robbie. I don't well, think he's, he's a for, typical everyman. He's definitely up for banter. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that banter might be the main. No, it strikes me that there's a there's a couple of stuffy BBC execs say, "Listen, they're sitting around going, look, we we have to appeal to the youth here, mm. the kids. I mean, the kids don't, the kids will accept Alan Shearer, sure, but I mean, they want Robbie Savage. Yeah, I think, and, um, and there's nobody there who puts a halt to it and says no. <laughs> Not, well, maybe they do. Robbie Savage has a couple of million Twitter well, followers. Well, or what something, kind of so. stuff is Robbie Savage supplying to us on here? Well, on Saturday night, he had a stab at the controversial pundit role, Ken, when analysing Manchester United's defeat to Swansea in particular, the role of one player. Look, this is Di Maria, who I watched for Real Madrid, who was sensational. He's getting knocked off the ball by Sigurdsson. Not strong enough. Here, what do you want him to do? Run with the ball, people run off him. Again, Routledge gets back. Look how easy he's knocked off the ball. It's Di Maria, £59 million. He gets some. Matter comes on. What do they do? matter, I tell you what, 
You go and play just in front of the back four. Rooney, you've had one shot in 2015 in the Premier League on target. You stay your own half. We're chasing the game. It's 2-1 down. Blind, I tell you what, you tell Mata to get up there. You should be doing that. Mata should be up the park. What should we do? Let's launch the ball to Fellaini and try and get knocked down, second ball, runners off, and it didn't happen. Look at this. This is Manchester United Football Club. Unacceptable. Not good enough. The manager can say they've played well. They've, they've had 65% possession. They've had three shots on target. Swansea have done the double over them. Yes, they're fourth in the league. But I tell you what, long ball. This is Manchester United. Unacceptable. Not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> this is Manchester United. And that was Angel Di Maria. If, 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 if you had a pundit bingo card, I think you would <laughs> have you very what, few spaces left on that. He had mentioned Di Maria's fee a couple of times as well, I think, even yeah. before we started playing that audio. Now he's... Uh, well, I, I mean, hard to argue. Oh, yeah. He, no, no, I, I, I did quite enjoy it. There was, there was entertainment value in that. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why I wanted to pick it out there. And what was it? Was it, Jews. was it the passion that drew you in? Just the this reputation man, of... This man Angel passionately feels... Passionately feels what he's saying. It's almost Hemingway-esque, you know. That he he kind of eschews regular sentence structure for just short staccato fragments, thought fragments, fragments. <laughs> thought fragments. It's not Hemingway either, actually. No, I don't know. I don't know what. It's more stream of consciousness, really, isn't it? It's impressionistic or a mosaic, a yeah. thought mosaic of, um, or you know, yeah, he's Jackson he's, Pollock. The fee, uh, player names, uh, name of club. Uh, his thoughts, his thoughts on the poor quality of the play. There, those four elements, he's basically tied them all in. He couldn't really tie them into sentences, but he did get across those four points. We're going to talk uh, about the, the latest victory for the Brodge later on, and uh, it's also Champions League week. Barcelona were beaten by Malaga at home in their uh, warm up for the game against Man City. So we'll chat about that a little bit later. Right now, it's time for Ken Erdies. Report on sport. So, uh, the match that Robbie Savage was talking about, there was obviously Manchester United losing to Swansea, and uh, Swansea was confirming or completing the double over Manchester United, um, which Gary Monk was obviously extremely pleased with. Uh, Van Hal uh, said afterwards, someone asked him, Do you think Swansea deserved a win? And he said, uh, He said, or rather, they said, You don't seem to think Swansea deserved the win. And he said, if you think they deserve it, you should write that. So the, the, the guy, um, which in a Welsh newspaper said, well, that's what I'm writing right here, Louis. The Swans were deserving <laughs> winners. Uh, this was put to Gary Monk as well, uh, who said, huh. and I thought he shook my hand after the game. Maybe it was a lookalike. So, <laughs> Gary Monk, another singer from Gary Monk. Yeah, so so uh, Van Hal sent, sent packing. Um, I mean, he, nobody seemed to be uh, taking it very... I mean, it's, you know, again, just watching the sort of reaction to what he's saying, you have a lot of scepticism about uh, his his remarks, including the Manchester Evening News. You know, someone needs to challenge the manager's authority, uh, one of their correspondents uh, writing in there. You know, how can how long can Van Hal continue to tell us that black is white? Um, we're unlucky. We've dominated for 90 minutes and we didn't score... From a lot of chances, Swansea were effective in the second half. They had a chance in the first minute, then no more chances. Only the shot, which was deflected for the goal. Um, so basically, he said we, you know, we dominated the game, loads of possession, forgot the score. Uh, to which uh, numerous reports are responding. Well, actually, they had more shots on target than you, and quite frankly, 
you know, losing to in both games to Swansea City isn't really good enough for Manchester United. Even David Moyes managed to win 4-1 against Swansea City at one point. Rooney looked a little bit lost after the game in his interview. He was sort of oh, trying to explain it away. Clearly just... Did, he has to front up he has to do the interview but he yeah. really just doesn't want to have to talk about a defeat like that what I would love to hear is Wayne Rooney's unedited um, yeah, thoughts on Robin Van Persie his oh, uh, yeah. strike partner the other day Van Persie really um, just absolutely terrible I mean he you know he's not really doing anything in the game um which you're kind of used to with Van Persie he's very much a finisher he kind of turned himself into that a few years ago but at least he was a incredibly effective finisher who you could rely on to, you know, he gets a side, he gets a half chance, he's going to score, he's going to at least hit the target. He's smashing shots into the side, netting, you know, just, uh, you know, he got injured at the end and maybe that's actually just as well mm. in, a, in a way. Manchester United and Robin van Persie, it looks as though they could do it some time apart from each other uh, right now. Radamel Falcao was sitting there with this serene expression was he trying to conceal the fact that he was the, one of the happiest men in Swansea? I'm not sure. because He was sitting there, obviously didn't get on. Um, you know, they made three substitutes. He's still left sitting there. So that's a fairly big statement by Louis van Gaal of what he thinks of Radamel Falcao. Um, but it looked as though the guys who came in, you know, Rooney obviously was, was playing in a more attacking kind of position than he had been. And it wasn't as though he did any better than... Falcao, in my opinion. Yeah, I don't know how happy Falcao was sitting there watching that, though. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, probably happier than if he'd seen Van Persie score a hat-trick. Mm. But I'm sure it was grimming him out that I can't even get in ahead of this guy. It doesn't even work. Well, I couldn't get in today. Yeah. But let's see how uh, let's see how it goes. So, um, this is now opening up. I mean, with the way that the results went, Arsenal went above Manchester United. Um, Tottenham managed to get a point where, they, where it looked as though they were going to lose. And Liverpool moved up to now within two points of Manchester United. So this nightmarish prospect, which looked as though it, there was no hope of it happening, of Liverpool again making it into the Champions League at their expense, is very much alive now. Yeah. Um, and to see Brendan Rodgers, uh, he's, he knows this. And the swagger is back with Brendan Rodgers. He has instantly reinflated to sort of assume his former uh, proportions. Um, he, you know, I mean, it's often said that, say, um, finance ministers should pursue counter-cyclical economic policies. In the good times, try and put the brakes on a little bit so things don't overheat, get carried away. And in the bad times, you know, throw an extra little bit of fuel on the fire to try and keep things ticking mm-hmm. over. You know, uh, whatever the direction of, of the overall economy, you should be trying to take a slightly opposite direction to keep things in balance. Brendan Rodgers does not believe in this. <laughs> Brendan Rodgers... He's like a kite. It's no. absolutely... The, <laughs> Whichever way the wind is blowing, Rodgers is going to be flying high or... B-Rodge, yeah, we're going to B-Rodge. If he's winning, he's singing. What's the, what's the problem with that? And if he's losing, maybe his eyes are darting around a little bit and he's, uh, you know, he's looking for someone to throw under the bus. But the point is that he is... I mean, I, what what... Liverpool have done under his management in the last two seasons is finished the season a lot better than they began it. And if that continues for a third year, then he is going to be one very uh, satisfied manager by the end of the um, by the end of the season. And right now, I mean, it looks as though, you know, where a couple of months ago, you looked at it and thought, well, 
what's happened here? You know, they've, all these players they've signed are, are failing. Players who previously were, uh, you know, doing okay are, are, are you know, Mignolet, for instance. I mean, it wasn't Mignolet was doing particularly well last season, but, you know, he was really having an absolute crisis, you know, a proper crisis of confidence. Um, uh, and now suddenly even Balotelli is, is able to score a couple of goals. Um you know, Rogers was even able to lecture Southampton a little bit on the program. I mean, those two guys, talking about Lambert and Lallana, who were booed continually during the game, gave their heart and soul to Southampton. We're big supporters of this club. They've moved to one of the biggest clubs in the world. They were wonderful servants. Um, for former servants or players, there's always appreciation, but nothing here. For <laughs> me, that's a wee bit sad. I was thinking of them today, looking at the program, everything they gave to this club to get them here today. And not a mention. In fact, they were mentioned 20 times. <laughs> More than 20 times in the program. But look, it's not as though Brendan Rodgers sat there reading the program. You know, he, he glanced he glanced at it. Maybe someone did have a flick through and said, no, I didn't see it. And maybe there was on pictures, I'm not sure. Do the Premier League footballers read the program much? Because if you, if you ever see the shots of the Irish dressing room, in, mm. in, in the rugby, I mean, they're... Every one of them seems to be... Keane Eady certainly always has a, a match program out in front of him reading away, and it seems like a lot of the rest of them do as well. They're probably not allowed to use their phones, are they? Ah, yeah, that's probably it. So they've got that uh, sort of text addiction um, common to many people in <laughs> modern life where you just need to be constantly feeding your brain some kind of line of text uh, from the internet which, if you don't have that, suddenly you're reading any available scrap of paper. Even the match program, uh, people will read. Uh, I don't know whether they whether they do or not. Maybe they have a look at it if they're on the cover or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah. We know Roy Keane used to read it. Roy Keane used to, used to read it, yeah. It was part of his preparation. Neil, Neil Lennon told us a, a great story about that on TV a couple of, a couple of series back. I saw your house in the program. What was that? A good my golf. double garage is bigger than that. Yeah, it could fit in my garage. Yeah, <laughs> I so. sure I hate these guys, but I wonder if there's something in this program that would make me hate them a little more. It's always uh, good. There is uh, some news this morning, which is that Chelsea have decided to appeal against the red card issue to Nemanja Matic. Really? Yeah. Um, now this, I suppose, is a sort of a, uh, the case that Chelsea are going to present, I assume, and they have to do this by one o'clock tomorrow, where they have to submit their evidence is that it was a crime of passion. You know, no, well, maybe not a crime. Uh, Jose Mourinho doesn't like that word. Uh, although if Nemanja Matic was to have done this on the street, uh, he potentially would be charged with a, with a crime. Uh, so, But I don't know. Of course, it didn't happen on the street. It happened on the, you know, happened on the field. But Ashley Barnes uh, kind of came through with a heavy studs-up challenge, caught Nemanja Matic. Um, his leg buckled a little bit. Unpleasant. Matic leapt to his feet and hurled <laughs> Ashley Barnes to the ground. Now, it's a, it's a very clear red card for Matic. There's nothing that you can do about that. You can't... You can claim provocation all you want, and maybe in, in a court of law, that might mitigate things. But yeah. if you're trying to rescind, the, the, the red card action still took place. And I, I'd say Chelsea could be snooker before they even begin here if the, the FA panel looks at the post-match interviews, because uh, Courtois was interviewed... And he said, oh, yeah, of course it was a red card. Yeah. I mean, Maddich can't do that. He, he, he's aware of that. Yeah. But he was provoked with this tackle. <laughs> so he's, uh, his own players already said it's a red clear, card. Clearly a red card. <laughs> so, Courtois. so Courtois might find himself in the, in the doghouse now with Mourinho, who was on goals on Sunday. And this was amazing. You know, see Mourinho sitting there with uh, uh, Chris Kamara. At his own request, I, 
I read today. Uh, apparently so. Amazingly. Uh, he, he wanted the, um, the bully pulpit of that uh, Girls on Sunday Sofa. Mm. Now... What uh, what program could possibly give me at least half an hour of uh, just time for me to waffle and, uh, and talk about how uh, unjust English football is towards my club? Possibly not challenge me too much uh, <laughs> as I lay out my case. I mean, I suppose you know maybe he could go on Channel Four News with John Snow, <laughs> <laughs> but he decided to go on Girls on Sunday with, with uh, Jeremy Paxman. Well, he no, no longer presents that show, does he? No, he's 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 gone. Yeah. He's gone from that. But um. But, you know, he, he had a, go, a big go at Ashley Barnes. Oh, he's a great past. He, he has a point in his career when he's at Brighton. He's suspended for seven or eight matches. There was a big incident with the referee. So he's checked up all this stuff and done his, done his homework. He's done his research. Um, should this player be chased of what he did in the past? I don't think so, says, <laughs> <laughs> says Jose Mourinho. He definitely thinks so. Uh, he's, well, he's saying uh, that he's, he's making a comparison with Diego Costa, who imported his, his dark past from Spain, I suppose one of the uh, drawbacks of of being, you know, of having been part of like a Champions League semi-final against Chelsea in which himself and John Terry were, were strutting around trying to intimidate each other for 180 minutes, I, I mean, means that everybody, uh, everyone saw that, you know. I mean, I'm sure the referees watched the Champions League semi-final as well and everyone's like, oh, you know, even if they knew nothing about Diego Costa, Everybody would say, "Oh, you know, so this is the guy who's going to go to Chelsea, right?" I see. You know, he's a kind of he's a fiery one. Yeah. Um, but Mourinho's, Mourinho's saying that essentially Costa, um, people are going on about his his past, and and that's why he won't get any penalties. But he, you know, he demanded to know. Uh, do you Sky Sports describe the actions? How do you Sky Sports describe the actions of the Burnley player yesterday? Because my English is not good enough to try to find another adjective to qualify when you call Diego Costa crimes. I don't find a word to describe what happened yesterday. I don't describe. I don't like the use of the language crimes. You know, for Diego Costa, I don't like that. Um, you start immediately in that moment the public judgment of the player. You give no space to the people that has to decide. What's he talking about here? Well, it's like who? The jury? There's no, you know, it's just a TV show. Yeah. <laughs> like, but Mourinho was claiming that he, he never, uh, he, he said at one point, oh, I never like look at the referee for the upcoming game and say, oh, to my players, oh, this referee has this characteristic, he has this characteristic, you know, you must do I never do that. Yeah, I thought, well, really? Do you really not do that? Um, nor, he claimed, did he ever... Um, say to his players that, you know, we want to put out a certain message, you know, about, you know, about this game or before the game or after the game. He never does that. And I suppose the Courtois incident, certainly Courtois' uh, statement there, is that odds with what Mourinho is, the kind of line Mourinho is pushing. But, you know, reading that book, for instance, about obviously a hostile book to Mourinho, but it claimed essentially that this was Diego Torres' book about his time at Real Madrid, that <laughs> that sort of uh, confecting these storylines was almost one of his main obsessions as manager. You know what I mean? It was not a not a minor concern for him. Me, the media handling, um, the, the uh, messaging, let's say, um, and the referee, uh, and what, what you say about referees, that this, like, he would go mad with players who said the wrong thing in the mix zone, you know, according to this. Right. Which they, which they increasingly did at Real Madrid just to sort of annoy him. Um so unless he's completely changed from the person who was managing Real Madrid, I find it implausible to think that he's not doing it. I mean, when you see the, the, how much attention he himself gives to it, all the, you know, he's talking about it all the time in public, 
and we're supposed to we're supposed to believe that he, he never addressed it in private the oldest cliche in the book about Jose Mourinho was thrown at him during the interview and that is do you take this do you say these things Jose to bring controversy upon yourself to deflect from the players mm. and give them uh, essentially give them a free ride and allow them to feel less pressure and he looked affronted oh yeah no I mean there's a campaign exactly. well that was when I was reminded of that thing in the Ferguson book I remember when Ferguson was saying the questions that I always used to like were the really long ones um, the really long ones where the guy is trying to sound intelligent and uh, that meant that I just sat there I had lots of time to give an answer while he, was, while he was droning on with his question. Uh, whereas the short, sharp ones sometimes left you struggling a little bit. But Mourinho, in that instance, was, was literally sitting there. And eventually the guy managed to finish the question and Mourinho just sort of shrugged. It was almost like... I must remember that. Maybe the, maybe the best technique in asking questions of these guys is to wind up a really long question, make it look as though it's going a certain direction. But it's all completely nonsense, and then just hit them with the sharp question at the end. Right, at the very end. So they've already started to think of one answer, and uh, then they have to recalibrate. Yeah, right at the um, end. Uh, I think I think in that instance, he just ignored this thing at the end and answered the question that he Probably. wanted you to ask him. Joey Barton is also um, well, his dark side came out. Well, Joey Barton did a bit of a Nemanja Matic in that he retaliated to provocation. Uh, only he did it in. Uh, you might say, a less manly way. As Steve Bruce said, you can't be punching people in the knackers. You um, enjoyed that quote, Murphy. You brought that to my well, attention this I morning. Just, I felt that if there's a better quote in 2015... <laughs> then, well, it's not, it's not even just the quote. You could just see Steve Bruce and his massive head just saying that phrase. Just, just wisely, kind of, wisely and telling you, you can't be punching people in the knackers, can you? Yeah. But when the red mist comes, we all do stupid things, <laughs> Bruce admitted. I never saw him. I never saw him do that. Then again, he played a lot of his career in the 80s, you know, the dark arts, the uh, the, the single camera. <laughs> uh, you never know what might have happened out there. Um, but, uh, you know, Barton being criticised now by teammate Charlie Austin said, well, there's only even so many times you can say sorry. It's the city sending off. It's kind of cost us the game. He's the villain. And rightly so for getting sent off. He's got to deal with it. He's going to miss the next three games. We move on now. So frosty enough uh, from Charlie Austin, uh, keep your... Uh, lost this game uh, 2-1 uh, their manager Ramsey suggesting that maybe Joey Barton might go on an anger management course you know someone said oh do you think maybe he needs another anger management course he says it's something I discussed with the player see what he's open to he's quite an intelligent lad I'm sure he'd be open to anything that he thought could help him Joey Barton though himself is the one that has most to say about his own sending off he says senior pros shouldn't be running over asking for him to be sent off this is Darnell Furlong who's making his debut, he's fouled Jelovic. Um, uh, and he says, if the boot was on the other foot, I wouldn't be screaming for a 19-year-old kid from Hull to be sent off. Alex Bruce has run 40 yards to not only get in the rest face and scream for a red card, but he barged me in the process. Has run, by the way, not rad. Sorry, just to... Has just r- the, the, the football... Has uh, run 40 yards. The lad's gone and run 40 yards there. I've stupidly reacted and touched Tom Huddleston up. Absolutely no malice. I didn't intend to hurt Tom. But I've been a fool and I've been rightly punished for it. But wait, there's more. Uh, he says, you see other instances where people make contact with other, be- other people's faces and it isn't a red card. Without making excuses for my own actions, it's stupid, but it's not malicious. I was sitting there for a couple of hours just thinking how stupid it was. The sickener for me as someone who puts the team above everything else is that I've let the team down. I've apologised to everyone. I've come out and fronted up. I've always been one when I make mistakes. 
to hold my hands up and say I've made a mistake. It's a testament to the kind of person that I am that I've fronted up. <laughs> I've made a mistake. I'm human. I'll try my utmost to atone for it in whatever way that is. All I can say is I'm sorry I've let people down. Certainly our fans and the players. I'm a man of substance and a man of principle. I can only apologize to that. I can't chop my arm off and give it to them. Obviously, if I could rewind it and take it back, I wouldn't do it. There are no excuses. As a 32-year-old with a few hundred Premier League appearances, somebody who's been captain of the club for a while with a very public profile, I should know <laughs> a lot better. People will lambaste me from pillar to post, and I have to accept that. As one of the tallest trees, you catch the most wind. I won't shy away from it. There's a long way to go between now and the end of the season, and I hope to atone for it, because that's all I can really do. Wow! All you come away with there are impressions of how great Joey Barton he's an amazing he is. What a character! What a what, what a, a world leader! That's he, really turned me right around on that kid. Well, look, what I admire about it is the way that he came out and fronted up. Mm. You know? That's what Joey Barton does. What he's a, gone and done there is he's come out and he's fronted up, hasn't he, Ken? As a tall oh, tree, yes. a tall tree has to front up. He catches the mouse spin, but you know he is a, <laughs> a man of substance, as he said. Uh, another man of substance, um, Sam Allardyce. Sam Allardyce, by the way is having a magnificent season. I mean, I know they didn't manage to ultimately win at West Ham, or at Tottenham, rather. But the guy's having a great season. Yep. I, In my opinion, a definite manager of the year candidate. Still apparently reviled by the West Ham fans, you know. But I quite like his defiant attitude. He just, I mean, I'm sure he does care, because Sam Allardyce does have a sensitive core. I mean... I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily all that, even that well hidden from the world. Um, I'm not saying he respects the views of every West Ham supporter individually, but as a collective, I'm sure he does. It, it does hurt him that, you know, they do tend to get in his back whenever they don't have a great result. Um, but he was a bit irritable uh, yesterday after Tottenham managed to equalise in like the last second, or well into, well beyond the, the end of injury, of injury time. time, which I believe, yeah. Mm. Um, and the point was that should the referee have blown up the game as soon as Harry Kane's penalty was saved? And he says the answer to that is yes. But he would be brave enough to do that at home, would he? He'll say there was still two seconds left. He'll say when the penalty was taken, there were five seconds left. When the rebound came off, there were three seconds left. So we're doing NFL now, aren't we? I'd like a timekeeper, to be honest with you. Um, he's... Uh, uh, Alex has to keep his hands off him. I mean, you saw the penalty. It was a, We were talking about, is Harry Kane ever going to dive? And Okay, he didn't dive, but he did show a certain willingness to to get that he penalty. He fell brilliantly, as Sam Allardyce said. Did he actually say that? Yeah. And, and it was put to, this was on the BBC on the Match of the Day interview. He was at, he, he said that, and then it was put to him, oh, so you, you, you say he, he, he it was a brilliant dive, you, you believe, or it was, a, it was a brilliant reaction. He did really well to get the penalty. Uh, do you believe he dived and he said, that he was wrong to do it? And Sam said, no, no. I mean, we should do more of that. Yeah. Uh, we, we, we don't fall over in the box correctly. And maybe maybe we're not being rewarded for our honesty. Yeah, I mean, he said, uh, he, he slagged off Harry Kane, but he, he wasn't good enough to score, but lucky enough to get the rebound. Uh, you can argue whether it's enough contact from Alex's arm or whether it's not, but when you're desperate like Tottenham are and you get touched, the player's going to fall over. So, yeah, not too impressed with it, but... Uh, Two, two. That's the end of Kennedy's report on sport. You can see the level of expectancy. Coach, this is the game you wanted a victory, boy. It didn't happen. What happened? Oh, I played such an idiot. 
a game that they've been looking forward to for a long time. Where do you where do you think you got it all wrong today? And then Pepe just ruins it for everyone. Thanks a lot, Pepe. You can see the level of expectancy. <laughs> He was fucking dreading. Sorry, huh? we're not we're out of here. Oh, we're not awake. We are. Oh. Well, I apologize for that, but obviously, he didn't exactly choose with me. All right. All right, John Bruin is uh, ready to talk. Mostly, John, just about uh, Southampton Liverpool yesterday, which was, uh, well, you were at it, certainly on TV. It looked like um, a good old-fashioned game, rain pelting down, players sliding around, bashing into each other, the referee not giving many frees. Yes, yeah, I, th- I think you have to say, actually, that the weather did contribute to perhaps some of what happened. Um, though I don't think uh, the referee, Kevin Friend, can blame uh, his, his refereeing performance necessary on not being able to see things. Um, it, it was one of those games where actually the first five minutes were absolutely sort of thrilling, fantastic, and then it didn't really sort of get going after that. I think Southampton sort of got bogged down a little bit. And Liverpool, perhaps a little tired from uh, their exertions on Thursday, held on to their lead. Um, but, I mean, I suppose from a Liverpool point of view, that's a very important win for them against an opponent that being very troublesome for quite a lot of the top teams in the Premier League. Um, and they're within two points of the Champions League positions now. And you have to say they're the team in form. Yeah, I mean, Southampton have, have slipped out of the top four now. Um, and on the evidence, yes, they look like they might struggle to return there. I mean, uh, they're not getting any goals from Graziano Pelle anymore. But... I was a little bit surprised they they um, didn't get anything out of that game yesterday. Purely the uh, anger of the crowd by halftime in that game. It, it was though Southampton had whipped up such a reservoir of uh, of indignation and outrage. They also really seemed to be quite angry with Adam Lallana, which was uh, I mean, what did you make of that, John? Because he, he's been there, I think, since he or was at Southampton since he was twelve years old. Um, eventually moved on, but you know, I, mean, I know. Brennan Rogers described him as uh, as a fantastic young player, but he is, you know, mid career professional. I mean, yeah. mid to late career professional. So he's given Southampton you, what might turn out to be the best years of his career, and then moved moved on for a lot of money. But they still really, really didn't seem to him. Not to mention a bunch of interviews talking about how he wouldn't even have been emotionally ready to play against them in in August, and making clear his emotional ties to the club. But uh, no dice. No, yeah, I mean. I've I've long had a problem with this, where football fans boo returning players. Um, I I, I seem to remember, I think it was West Ham, uh, Scott Parker was playing for Tottenham at West Ham and they booed Scott Parker. Now, I don't know if you remember, Scott Parker gave absolutely everything for West Ham and I felt that was unfair. Now, the deal with Lallana is that it's suggested um, and it also denied uh, that he threatened to go on strike if he didn't get his move to to Liverpool from Southampton, and that's what's caused the disquiet. Um, Lovren being booed, well, I mean, OK, he, he, that was a similar situation, and 
he did publicly say that he wanted to leave Southampton. The only thing you would say is that they made a significant profit on him, 20 million, which allowed them to build the good team they've got this season. But it doesn't work that way in fandom, does it? Uh, it, it, it tends to be, um, there are no shades of grey with these type of things. It's, you know, he left our club, therefore we hate him. The only thing to say is that Ricky Lambert got very warm applause when he was in the warm-up. Um, and if you think about it, Lambert and Lalana, which is what Brendan Rodgers mentioned, uh, they played for the club when they were two divisions below, helped them get up to the Premier League, helped them stay in the Premier League, uh, and also made money for them to, to help build another team. So the fans have, you know, perhaps a little unfair on the both of them. Now, one thing is that Brendan Rodgers was saying, oh, I, I read the programme and there was no mention of them. And, you know, he was really annoyed about that, considering the service they'd given to the club. Now, actually, I think I think it was that there was 10 mentions of Adam Lallana and 12 of Ricky Lambert. So maybe we have to question Brendan Rodgers' skim-reading techniques there. Yeah, just on Rodgers, he seems to uh, be turning things around nicely. And uh, I don't know how you think he's handled the Gerrard, the, well, the Balotelli uh, taking the penalty off, uh, Henderson and Gerrard's subsequent comments. It doesn't seem like he's, he's said too much publicly on that. Now, there was no sign of Balotelli at the weekend, but that could be for... A uh, number of reasons. Do you think he's he's done quite well here with what what was a potentially a tricky situation caused both by Balotelli and arguably by Gerard too? Yeah, I mean, Rogers did a Friday press conference, um, which actually went against what he said on, on Thursday night when he was asked about the the incident where Stephen Gerrard said that Balotelli shouldn't have taken the penalty off Jordan Henderson. He just kept saying, "Well, we won the game one nil. That's that's the story as far as I'm concerned." The next day. He actually said that Brent Rogers did a, a thing that you don't hear many managers doing, which is he actually admitted that it was his mistake for not clarifying things more to his players, and that actually there, there would be a designated uh, hierarchy of penalty takers. So if Gerard's on the pitch, it's him. If Balotelli's on the pitch, it's him second. So he go he gets the call. So he, he did negotiate that one quite well, actually. Um, the thing to say about Rogers is. Things are going very well for him at the moment, and uh, <laughs> I suppose I'm starting to see signs of uh, the Rogers that we've seen when things go well, which is slightly um, over the top. I, I thought the thing that he said about Southampton was a bit over the top, really. I don't really think it's for, for a manager to start ask, telling people how to write their programmes. What, what, um, what was that for, for those of us who missed that comment? Well, that was the thing where he was saying that he didn't think the programme mentioned uh, Adam Lallana and Ricky Lambert. Enough. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you, you can't go around doing that, can you? I mean, uh, Southampton's a very well-run run club. You know, there's, I mean, can you imagine? That, that's a new one for me, you know, reading the programme and... and criticising the editorial of it um, and also there was the other thing where he, he, I suppose he almost patronised Ronald Koeman by saying well you know in, in football sometimes you know decisions go for you and go against you and maybe that's the way it is and saying that Kevin Friend had an excellent game which I don't think is necessarily so I mean another incident I remember is Emre Chan uh, fouled um, I think it was Juricic again and, and should have been booked for it and this was one of those performances where when referees are criticised at the moment, these are the ones that people will come back to because uh, the referees seem to let, let a lot go. 
at the moment, and this is causing a problem for them. Yeah, and, and one person in particular over the weekend was making a, a bit of a song and dance about this, and we will definitely get to him. But I just want to ask you on the subject of... I mean, Rogers. don't forget, also uh, praised the goal that Coutinho had scored in terms of how Liverpool's system had allowed him to, <laughs> to score that goal. I was thinking of you when I saw that comment, Ken. I thought, what's Ken going to say you... about Brendan Rodgers today? Uh, and then suddenly Rodgers said the most Brendan Rodgers thing ever well, look, in, in praising I mean, the system for an unbelievable <clears throat> 25-yarder. He's making the point that that, um, that uh, Liverpool have set up in a way that enables Philip Coutinho to get into that pocket of space and then score a goal that we haven't seen him score ever before, but maybe will again given certain systemic factors. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, John, if you... I mean, it, it is undeniable that he has turned things around, or Liverpool have turned things around, uh, since, uh, say, they lost at Old Trafford, at which point they were 10 points, I think, behind Manchester United, or were shortly after that 10 points behind them. Um, two points is the gap now, and things are looking a lot rosier. I mean, Mignolet uh, has stopped uh, you know, conceding silly goals in every game. Um, you know, Sacco and Emery Chan are playing well in defence. Jordan Ibe uh, has made quite an impression. Daniel Sturridge is fit again. I mean, uh, how much credit do you give Brendan Rodgers specifically for uh, for having turned things around? Well, I have to give him quite a lot of credit. Um, the one thing you would say about Rodgers is he is a he is brave in his uh, in his well, certainly in his tactics. Let's put it that way. I'm not not necessarily sure about the selections because. You have the Steven Gerrard elephant in the room. But what you have to say is that change to the three at the back um, that produced, that he actually first did at Old Trafford in a match that they lost 3-0, but actually came away with a great deal of credit. That's delivered results for, for Rodgers and Liverpool. Um, I'm not quite sure about the, uh, the, the... I mean, it was a pass from Markovic, wasn't it, that found Coutinho in that space mm-hmm. and from which he scored. Now, if you watch Liverpool quite a lot, Sometimes you'll see Coutinho take on those shots and you'll see his colleagues frustrated that he hasn't given them the ball. Um, he's not. I think Coutinho, what's prevented him from being a really the highest grade of player is that he probably doesn't score enough goals. Um, interestingly, something that Brendan Rodgers said yesterday was he was asked about and Liverpool have now, is it five clean sheets in a row for the first time in 10 years or something like that? And uh, he was asked about that and he said, oh yeah, that's the new defensive coach that everyone was talking about. Um, because at the time when Liverpool was suffering, people were saying that he needed to bring in a defensive coach. So, again, Brendan Rodgers was uh, being, shall we say, let's say she full of himself, uh, to, to say that, yeah, I, I can solve the defensive problems because I too am a defensive coach as well as an attacking coach. But that aside, you have to say that results speak for themselves. Some of Liverpool's performances have spoken for themselves. Uh, he now has a wealth of options. One of the good things about the fact that he's playing that three-four-three formation is he's been able to get more of his good ball players on the pitch. It's a formation that allows the likes of Markovic, Ibe um, to make contributions. And um, Liverpool are the team. If you look at that battle, and it's essentially for fourth place now, um, and it probably looks as though it's going to be between Manchester United and Liverpool, you wouldn't back against Liverpool now. You, uh, John, were also along to see Chelsea against Burnley and, and another disappointing results for Chelsea, I suppose. Maybe struggling a little bit, although so far ahead at this stage that um, I don't think anyone's betting against them yet. Um, Jose Mourinho though, then pops up on goals on Sunday uh, the next day, uh, which was, I think, a surprise to everybody. Um, 
but you know, he 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 talked. I mean, he sat there through throughout the whole program, gave his thoughts on various other Premier League matches and so on. But mainly, was there to complain about this campaign against Chelsea, which he's been he's been going on about uh, all season. There's an article I saw today in the Times by Matthew Syed, in which he argues that Jose Mourinho was touched by genuine paranoia and compares him to a nine eleven truther. Uh, do you think? Do you think? Um, yeah, Syed's got a case there. I mean, I, I kind of always assumed there was a cynical element to, to Mourinho doing this, but maybe he does really believe it. It's beginning to look that way, isn't it? Um, every match, every, every every sort of almost like TV broadcast is looking for some kind of agenda. Um, now, when Jose Mourinho was last in England, towards the end of it, um, there was a bit of this type of thing. Um, I remember the incident with Stephen Hunt and uh, the um, the hospital, you know, the, the emergency services and stuff like that. I mean, that was that was crazy stuff at the time. But it does seem to happen week on week now. Um, I don't think he's assisted by the fact that Chelsea are not as good as everyone perhaps thought they were at the start of this season. And they're having to rely on getting refereeing decisions almost to win matches. Now, uh, you have to say against Burnley, they had two great penalty shouts turned down. Ashley Barnes might have been booked earlier on in the game for his foul on Ivanovic, um, yet, uh, which meant, probably would have meant he wouldn't have fouled Matic later on. Um, so the things did go against Chelsea in that regard, but this was not a great performance by Chelsea. They were poor beyond the opening part of the match. Um, and Burnley, I have to say, I thought deserved their points. Um, but things aren't good for Chelsea because they're sort of. I think the plan for him was that he would win the league at a canter by Christmas, and then redirect his attention on winning the Champions League um, or maybe the FA Cup and League Cup. Um, and it's not quite worked out for him. Um, I, I do think, though, when we talk about Mourinho, uh, I think the pressure that he took upon himself. In Madrid, in particular, at Real, that's probably changed him a little bit. Um, he's not as self-assured as he once was. Um, and this probably gives rise to the sort of paranoia that you and Matthew Saeed mentioned. Yep. John, we'll leave it there. Listen, great stuff. Thanks a million. Cheers. Am um, I right in thinking you agree with John, Kenan, that you, you would also have a bit of an issue with players getting booed upon their return to former clubs? Not really. No. Um... I'm trying to think. I it, mean, it must depend on the circumstances. People are trying to take the joy out of the game, Ken. You know, what if what what's left for the fans then? <laughs> uh, well, I can understand it, I mean, and I suppose each case is a bit different. I mean, obviously, as as he's saying there, as John was saying, the attitude to Ricky Lambert was quite different. Yeah, and the attitude to Cristiano Ronaldo when he returns to Old Trafford oh, is quite yeah, different. Yeah, I mean, Ronaldo when he came back to Old Trafford was almost. <laughs> uh, you almost would have thought, well. God's sake, I mean, somebody should be booing this guy. You know, this is kind of, uh, but it was almost self-abasing, you know, to, to Cristiano Ronaldo. It's like, oh, so glad Of course he left you. us. Of course he left us. Of course he left us. I mean, you did nothing, nothing you for you over dream. here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and it depends on the circumstance. They obviously thought Lallana was a bit tricky the way he, he manoeuvred his way out of there. Um, but, you know... I, I, I was a little bit surprised maybe at the at the vehemence of the booing for Lana, but you know at the same time I don't you can't really 
criticise. It does seem that the uh, story that he agitated for a move and uh, engineered it, um, engineered his way out of there seems to have real people up no, the wrong the, way. The tiresome thing about it is obviously the, the kind of, we have always been at war with East Asia, thinking implicit in it, in that, you know, you've got fans who a, f- a few months ago are, this guy is their, their hero, and now suddenly... Um, <laughs> so the emotion seems fake. I mean, at some point, the emotion's been fake, right? They're not necessarily. I well, mean, no, the circumstances have changed. Yeah. At one point, he played for them and scored goals for them and yeah. created them, and now he's doing it for another club. I mean, if you were if you were happily married and then discovered that your loving spouse had cheated on you and, and actually had left you, then love might, in fact, turn to hate, and you might sincerely believe those emotions are both... Both times. They may be real on both occasions. I suppose the counter-argument to that would be that this is just a football <laughs> arrangement. <laughs> maybe... And if you're equating it to your marriage in some way that perhaps you've lost yeah, perspective you've lost in some way. Just on that topic of agitating for a move away from a club, it put me in mind of a brilliant article I once read by one of the great pundits in football at the moment. It was written for BBC Sport by Robbie Savage. Oh, in yeah. 2013, you remember this? Well, Robbie Savage wrote, uh, this, this, is what it, this is the intro to it. Robbie Savage is one of British football's most controversial and colourful characters. Now a successful football pundit, he enjoyed 17 seasons as a professional footballer, blah, blah, blah. Here is his 11-point guide to the dirty tricks footballers will use to get the transfer they want. <laughs> oh, <laughs> this yeah. was actually very insightful. So this is, my, this is the, the day that my opinion on Robbie Savage turns completely. Sulk is one. Stop communicating. I won't go through um, necessarily... Every every last uh, the details of every last one, but you sulk, you stop communicating, uh, which seems uh, fair enough. Fake injury, make up newspaper stories, use the media, undermine the manager, fight with teammates, moan to backroom staff, be a bad influence, don't put the effort in, and let other clubs know you want to move. Yeah. Um, does he say at some point that he had used each of these at? at uh He's either used them or seen them used at some point. Enough on uh, Mr. Savage there. We're going to move on to the Champions League this week. Man City against Barcelona is the big one tomorrow night. And Barca warmed warmed up in the worst way possible, beaten at home by Malaga. Kieran Canning joins us uh, from Madrid to talk about this. Kieran, the defeat was just a weird result given how well they've been going up to now in the last uh, number of weeks. What actually happened? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it took everyone by surprise. Not, not just the fact that, obviously, any time Barcelona get beaten at home, by a team like Malaga, it's a, it's a surprise. But given the way, given the way that Barcelona had been playing coming into the game, they'd won eleven games in a row, and, and not just won those games, but won them comfortably, scoring three, four, five goals, and and many of them, the front three between of uh, Messi, Neymar, and, and Suarez, really looked as, looked as if they were starting to to understand one another and were playing very well together. And then this game came out of the blue. Um, Malaga scored. Very early on, it was a mistake by Dani Alves, poor pass back that um, Quanmi nipped in and scored. And then after that, the strangest thing about the game was that it wasn't it wasn't even one of those games where Barcelona missed a, a whole load of chances or the, the goalkeeper had a great game. They just seemed completely unable to to break down the Malaga defence. Um, on the one hand, you would say yes, Malaga did very well. They they were very well organised. They knew what they wanted to do. They actually they drew nil nil at home to Barcelona earlier in the season. So the, the first team, and I think it's seven seasons, they've kept two clean sheets against Barcelona. But Barcelona just looked really lethargic um, this whole season. They've really sort of lived and died by that front three. The, the midfield has become less and less of an influence from the sort of glorious days of, of Guardiola. 
Um, and so when those those three, particularly Messi, aren't in, in top form, then they can be found out, and, and that was the case on Saturday. I mean, the, the most obvious sort of explanation for why, why this happens might take in the fact they're playing Manchester City in the Champions League and maybe the players' minds were elsewhere or maybe just an early Malaga goal wasn't quite what they were expecting and they're thinking about another game than the one they're playing in. But there had also, uh, in the week leading up to this game, been some interesting exchanges um, with between Luis Enrique and the media, um, going back to what Lionel Messi said about the uh, he uh, Messi essentially said the atmosphere completely changed here after that Sociedad game, which was also coincidentally a time at which himself and Luis Enrique supposedly had a bit of a falling out. And when this was put to Luis Enrique last week, he didn't really seem to agree. Yeah, I, mean, I think that I mean, Luis Enrique is never um, particularly warm towards the media, shall I say? And I think that he has insisted for for the past three, four weeks that nothing changed after that Sociedad game, that the attitude had been the same, been training equally as hard, and that just things had sort of clicked into place um, post the Sociedad game. So when Messi came out on Thursday, I think it was, and um, you know, it was very, very rare for Messi to speak, but it was at a sponsor's event, so he was sort of obliged to, and then... Um, Said, yeah, the attitude had changed. They were, they were, they were training harder. They understood each other more. They were more concentrated in the games, more intense in the games. Um, then when Ricky has his press conference on on the Friday, he can't really go back and everything he said for the past three or four weeks. So he was, he was very insistent that nothing had changed, that he wasn't going to get involved in any any controversy. Um, but they were they were continuing on on the same line as as they had in in the previous week. So. I still don't think that the um, the relationship between Enrique and, and Messi is perfect. I think that's been been made pretty clear. But at least until the weekend, it seemed to be the the um, the idea that they'd sort of put that to one side and that they were going to work together for the the good of the team. And whether it be on on Messi's terms, it looks like much more than Enrique's. That that would go until the end of the season, and then we would see what happens from there. I'd still be very surprised. If Enrique was at Barcelona come next season, I think he'd have to have a, an extraordinary end to the season of winning the Liga or the Champions League or, or possibly both. Um, but I, I also don't know how much this is really going to affect them going into the Manchester City game just because of the, the type of game that Barcelona have struggled with this season. I mean, and then the the six games that they've dropped points in the league in La Liga, they haven't scored in five of them, and five of those have been against what you would you would think of as being smaller teams and teams that have really stuck 10 or 11 men behind the ball and tried to close things up and I think it's interesting and the way that the style has changed so drastically in a, in a few years that Gerard Piquet said after the game that playing Manchester City would suit them because Manchester City would go and attack them and it's been proven in the past couple of months that Barcelona know how to counter-attack which is not something you would have said of you know the, the Guardiola team, the team that was based primarily around possession and, and dominating the ball. Now with <clears throat> with the likes of, of uh, Neymar and Suarez joining Messi, they almost like those spaces to counter-attack into more. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw there's some comments by Sergio Busquets. He's, uh, Sulo has a piece with him, uh, and he's talking about uh, how... that this, Well, I mean, he's talking about the new style that the team has. Um, it's more difficult to play one touch uh, because 95% of opponents shut down, wait and counter-attack. Uh, so it's it's difficult to play one touch. Our new style is partly a reaction to other teams. It's a mix now. Teammates are not as close to me, 
which has advantages and disadvantages. I'm, I imagine Pep Guardiola um, reading that and not tearing his hair out, but definitely rubbing his scalp uh, angrily uh, to see to see Busquets say teammates aren't as cl- aren't as close to me. I mean, almost the, one of his kind of um, obsessions was this thing: you know, you, the distances between the players. It's all about the distances between the players. Um, and if Barcelona and this Busquets account are now kind of playing where they're spread out um, across the field a bit more, that's a that's a kind of individ- individualistic game that uh, Pep Guardiola um, thought was kind of last century stuff. Yeah, but I think this, I mean, like so much with Barcelona over the past couple of years, it, it starts at the top of the club and you know, that's the presidents and the board. And yeah, it's great having this front three, but this front three has cost an awful lot of money. I mean, we don't exactly know quite how much Neymar cost, but um, it seems to be a lot more than they admitted to start off with. And then officially Suarez is is the, the highest transfer fee that Barcelona have ever played, paid for a player. So to balance the books in, in those two summers a bit, they've sold uh, Thiago Alcantara uh, two summers ago and then Cesc Fabregas last year. And there were two players that, in the Guardiola era, the, he would try and fit in along with Xavi and Iniesta at their peak and have you know, sometimes five, six, even more midfielders in, in the same team. What I think Barcelona haven't done well is that at exactly the time that they needed Thiago and Sexton, they should have been the real heirs to, to the Xavi and Iniesta partnership. They've let them go at exactly the same time where Xavi and Iniesta have started to look old and, and their influence on the team has waned. Um, and there hasn't really been the replacements for them. I mean, Rakitic um, has had a relatively solid first season um but he was actually rested on Saturday, and I think that might make a big uh, a big difference to them for the for the City game. But it's quite clear that that now that the midfield is seen as as a, a way of getting the ball to that front three as quickly as possible, rather than being the the area of the field that, that dominates the game like it did under Guardiola. Yep, Kieran Canning in Spain, brilliant stuff. Thanks, Manny. Okay, thanks, Ed. That's interesting. So Barcelona now are a counter-attacking team with no midfield of note. It seems. Um, which is amazing compared to what they were a couple of years ago. Yeah, well, it's, it's the weight of the team is all up front now. Um, I mean, that's you know, if you're going to have Luis Suarez, Neymar, and Messi <laughs> one team, they are going to. That's the center of gravity of the team, right there. Mm. Um, you know, it's. I think it's it's clearly not as sophisticated as as what they were five six years ago. I mean, that was a that what they. The team that they had then was something really futuristic, and it was something that hadn't been seen before, or at least hadn't been seen to that extreme. Whereas now, this is this is really quite conventional. You know, you've got this is kind of like a Real Madrid setup. You know, like yeah. a, a sort of you've got some you've got some of the world's best players, and hopefully they're going to hit it off. I mean, you would you would think that those three guys would should be able to play some good stuff together, and they have been doing so over the last couple of months. But I'd, I imagine that Manchester City. Would fancy this game a good deal more than they did, um, than they would have played against playing against the Guardiola Barcelona. Okay, we better wrap things up here because we have to go and get ready for our show in the Sugar Club in Dublin tonight. The Irish Times second captain sports night with the Rabo Direct is on this evening, and we are going to talk more about Barcelona, Man City, or Man City against Barcelona. In that one, we're going to have Richie Sadler and Brian Kerr 
as uh, as two of our many guests. Thanks very much, by the way, to everyone who applied for tickets for that one. We had loads of applications, and uh, it's not a massive venue. It's a, it's a lovely venue, Sugar Club, um, but not, it, I'd call it intimate, Murph, probably is, mm. is the word. Uh, so not uh, enough space to accommodate everybody, and uh, we will do our best. See, I can't guarantee people tickets the next time, Murph, so I'm going to say we'll do our best mm. to fit people Nothing more tragic the next than, time. Uh, <laughs> than the people who have said... Uh, another one to add to the collection of second captain's rejection letters this, it, it breaks our heart and we apologise and, uh, and we will do our best so listen thanks very much for that and we will put that show out as a podcast the show on the Sugar Club this evening uh, have a listen to that if you can thanks very much for listening to today's show thank you Ken thank you too thanks Kieran. thank you Owen thank you Kenny thank you Kieran. Uh thanks again and we'll chat to you soon take care What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.